We've heard of hot tub folliculitis, but hot tub lung? What is it, and is it a threat to our patients? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gwen Hewitt, the Director of the Adult Infectious Disease Care Unit and Chairman of the Infection Control Committee at the National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to be discussing hot tub lung. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Hewitt. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Hot tub lung, I've never, as a practicing internist, I've never heard that term. Is this something that's been recognized fairly recently? You know, actually, hot tub lung has been described for well over a decade. I think that with the rise of hot tub use, we're becoming more familiar with it. More and more people install hot tubs both outside and inside in their own homes. And what is hot tub lung? Well, hot tub lung is basically an autoimmune reaction, a lung autoimmune reaction to certain proteins that are contained in predominantly, we feel, mycobacteria, non-tuberculous mycobacteria that are in water pipe systems and hot water reservoirs such as indoor swimming pools and indoor hot tubs. And when the lung is exposed to these antigens, some people who are vulnerable for reasons as that we don't know yet, basically their lungs become very inflamed and they become progressively more short of breath and will often require oxygen uh, until the etiology of the problem is determined. So it can be a fairly dramatic type of uh, presentation. It can be very dramatic, actually. And it sounds like it's not so much the infection, it's the reaction to these uh, proteins on the mycobacteria. Well, you know, that's the interesting question. I, I would love to say that we've totally figured out the problem here, but we're still trying to figure that out. Is it solely an autoimmune response or is it infection? We don't think it's solely an infection. But I think the big question is, is it a combination of infection as well as hypersensitivity reaction. Very interesting. And is this something that's fairly common that we may not be recognizing or more of an unusual type of finding? I wouldn't say that it's common. You know, it is still an uncommon phenomenon, particularly considering if you were to add up all the people in the United States that have an indoor hot tub or spend time in an indoor swimming pool or spa environment. But I think those of us that deal with this problem frequently are recognizing that it's becoming a bigger problem than we actually thought it was. Can there be more subtle presentations that may be out there not requiring the oxygen and all? Absolutely. This is a spectrum, like any disease process, quite honestly. And you can have folks that just notice subtle shortness of breath, perhaps, or cough, uh, and they can't necessarily they're not focused on environments that they might have been in, particularly if they're a lifeguard in an indoor swimming pool situation or if they're a caretaker of spas and resorts. Uh, They they may not recognize, uh, in thinking back, maybe their cough started when they started this job, you know, in either one of these instances. Or if you have it in your home, it can be subtle enough that it can take several months for you to really characterize the problem. And then the physician, of course, has to ask the right questions uh, to get a good environmental history. Absolutely. We certainly see uh, people with shortness of breath and fatigue uh, frequently that to have a high index of suspicion for something like this must be mandatory. Is repeated exposure an important risk factor or can the uh, occasional bather also be uh, afflicted by this? Probably the occasional bather can be afflicted with it. It probably is 
certainly more pronounced, obviously, if you're in some constant exposure either in the workplace or at home. And let me just give you a scenario that we we certainly have seen, my colleagues and I here at National Jewish, where a patient had an indoor spa, but the spa was in a porchway attached to the outside of their house, but it was an enclosed porch with windows and it was virtually enclosed. But there were intake air ducts within that so that the air circulation in the house communicated with the air circulation in this outdoor enclosed porch. And the patient clearly had uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis related to this hot tub, and they didn't go into the hot tub themselves much at all. But family members did quite a lot. And are there other particular risk factors? I I think of uh, underlying lung disease or or perhaps immunocompromised as things that might predispose to something like this? For the most part, these are folks that are perfectly healthy uh, and acquire this. That is fascinating. In terms of the clinical presentation, it's typically one of dyspnea? Dyspnea, I would say dyspnea and cough. Fatigue comes a little bit later, probably correlating to some increased inflammatory that is going on because usually their inflammatory markers are elevated and as their hypoxemia develops and then worsens, certainly that contributes to fatigue as well. And physical exam, is that helpful at all? Are we hearing wheezing or what do we find? You know, it, it can really vary. I would say that typically wheezing, certainly in the early part of this, is not a prominent at all. And in fact, they may have an entirely normal auscultary findings on physical exam. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm discussing hot tub lung with Dr. Gwen Hewitt, the chairman of the Infection Control Committee at the National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver. Dr. Hewitt, testing. If we suspect this, what uh, testing should we put our patients through? Well, that's a bit of controversy as well. Certainly a chest x-ray and uh, oxygen saturation as far as part of their vital signs, uh, you would want to get the oxygen saturation, take the rest of their vital signs. As I said on physical exam, you may not notice anything particularly abnormal on auscultation of the lungs. The chest x-ray very likely is going to underrepresent any findings that are there. So a, a CAT scan of the chest is really imperative. And then certainly going in hand in hand with that are full pulmonary function tests where you're probably going to see some early findings of decrements in the forced vital capacity and the FEV1 as well as certainly getting into the disease process, you're going to notice some change and decrement in the diffusing lung capacity as well. Getting a sputum sample or a bronchoalveolar lavage sample, sputum is not an unusual thing that we would want to get, certainly, because if you're going to find uh, mycobacteria, that's the best way to get it is from an induced sputum. Then very few people will go on to some type of biopsy of the lung. But I have to tell you, if you take a good history and if you have a presentation and the patient has been in some type of environment such as this, you can probably at least initially approach this without a lung biopsy. And do you see in the peripheral blood an eosinophilia or or eosinophils in the sputum? No, you do not. So it's not something that is an allergic type of phenomenon that we would see a peripheral eosinophilia. Interesting. And do you need to send the sputum specifically for acid fast stains? Yes. Okay. So you really have to have a high index of suspicion that something like this might be going on. Correct. Are there other diagnoses that sometimes uh, can confuse a clinician? 
in many of the patients that I've seen in conjunction with my pulmonary colleagues here at National Jewish, a lot of these folks have ended up going on to some type of uh, either surgical lung biopsy or a transbronchial biopsy. And when you see granulomas, which is the common finding on a pathologic evaluation of the tissue, one would think of any number of either infections, fungal infections that might cause granulomas or sarcoidosis as another kind of disease process that would give you a typical granulomatous disease process on the lung biopsy. And then the definitive diagnosis is made by growing out the mycobacteria or on the stain of the tissue? I would uh, say that probably the definitive diagnosis is you have radiographs and physiology that go along with this. You have a history that is compatible with this in that the patient is exposed to some type of water source that they could have the mycobacteria, and then certainly a a culture on top of that is pretty sine qua non for this uh, disease process. So largely a clinical diagnosis and then confirmed by the culture eventually. Absolutely. And then how do we treat these patients? Well, and that's the controversy. So the first thing that we all certainly agree on is that the patient must be removed from the environment that's causing the hypersensitivity reaction. So if the hot tub is there, the hot tub must be drained and and must be removed. And I will tell you that I personally have had a patient that had a diagnosis of hypersensitivity pneumonitis, drained the hot tub, was a good citizen, didn't use the hot tub, it, you know, it wasn't uh, filled up. Then her arthritis started back. They filled the hot tub up. She came back with another episode of hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And we went through this three separate times. Mm. <laughs> so the hot tub has got to be out of that person's life and out of that person's environment if it indeed is a hot tub. If it's a lifeguard, then they shouldn't be a lifeguard anymore. Or if they're a worker in a resort whose job it is to take care of the spas, they should be moved to a different job setting. Then the next thing almost always is that corticosteroids are administered for usually a month or two to decrease the significant inflammation that's going on because what you want to do is catch this early so the damage is not permanent. And where the controversy is amongst those of us that deal with this is do you adjunctively give antibiotics directed towards the non-tuberculous mycobacteria. And I have to say that the jury's out. Uh, There's been no controlled studies, large controlled studies, because this is a fairly rare disorder. And I have, in some cases, given antibiotics along with the steroids. I've uh, not given antibiotics. And so I've done both situations. And is the prognosis fairly favorable? You know, the prognosis, generally speaking, is very favorable. And again, it's, I think, our job as clinicians to open our eyes to think about this diagnosis because clearly the sooner that you can catch this, the less permanent scarring to the airways will take place and hopefully you can have some reversibility to the airway inflammation. And to our patients who have uh, hot tubs or indoor pools, is there any particular maintenance or important things in terms of prevention? Well, another great question. Um, Certainly, uh, we would recommend that you adhere to all the manufacturer's recommended cleaning protocols and changing water for hot tubs now. Of the current things and chemicals that are touted by the industry, such as chlorine or bromine or ozone, Uh, none of these actually kill non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Non-tuberculous mycobacteria are very hardy, 
slow-growing organisms that are quite resistant to environmental decontamination. So really, there doesn't appear to be anything specific that we can do other than the basic uh, hygiene that's recommended. And the uh, the clinical bottom line to primary care providers, uh, is it just to be aware of this and take the appropriate history? Absolutely, and I realize that all of us are busy, but it's a very quick question to ask. Uh, do you have an indoor hot tub? Do you uh, have an indoor water sculpture? Do you spend time in an indoor swimming pool to go along with the patients coming in with shortness of breath or dyspnea. Well, I want to thank Dr. Gwen Hewitt, who has been our guest as we've been discussing hot tub lung. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM157-157. Thank you for listening.